I want to begin by acknowledging that uh, Shadia's husband Jonah was licensed yesterday, and uh, that's after a long process. Very long and difficult process, uh, so that's really good news. Um, this uh, psalm uh, has a heading on top of it, and uh, these headings were put in later after the Psalter was written, but they are generally trusted by scholars. And uh, this one says that it was written uh, by one of the sons of Korah. And if you know uh, the Old Testament, you know that the sons of Korah were a special family among the Israelites. and it was their great blessing to care for the temple. And so they would have um, done things like dusted you know, the woodwork around here, or they would have polished um, any of the brass or uh, the gold ornamentation, and they would have taken the objects uh, like the communion, uh, you know, the, the baptismal bowl, and they would have cleaned them and put them away, and uh, all this very lovingly. There was the former sexton here, um, his name was Richard Davis, and uh, he not only did these things, but he, he did them with such love and care that he worked way beyond the number of hours he needed to. Uh, he knew every square inch of this building. He loved it all. And uh, I thought that he was a great image of what one of the sons of Korah were probably like. It wasn't just that they were caring for the building. They absolutely loved the temple. And one day, one of them was uh, so overwhelmed by the glory of the temple as he was looking around at it that uh, he just burst out into song. And uh, maybe he wrote it down, or maybe another one wrote it down. It looks like it was written by more than one, but the overwhelming beauty and the sacred majesty of the temple that they got to live in and work in um, caused them to burst out, how lovely or how beautiful is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And that's really the key verse of this psalm, which are, has two concepts that are a little bit uh, the opposite of each other. On the one hand, how lovely or how beautiful or majestic or splendid. So you've got that concept. And when you think about beauty, you think about something that is dazzling and overwhelming, like the temple would have been. It was built to be absolutely awesome and to kind of dwarf the pilgrim that came in there and make them feel very tiny. So you have that concept, something like the Great Wall of China or the Parthenon or the Grand Canyon, but then you've also got the concept of God being very uh, homey, or the, play, the temple was homey, it was homely, it was, it was a place that you would call home, it was a place that was comfortable, a place that had, uh, you know, like a shabby couch or um, where you could kick off your shoes, a place like that. So God's temple had the two concepts of, on the one hand, it was absolutely lovely and beautiful and dazzling and splendid, but on the other hand, it was also God's home. And not just his home, but his people's home. And uh, like so many things about God and his kingdom, it's paradoxical. It's both the same thing at one time. Things we usually put in different parts of our mind, he brings them together. And so I want to look at these two things and what they tell us about this house that we're supposed to live in. This is obviously not the temple, but it is a place uh, of God's people where God's people dwell. Um, the New Testament says we are temples of the Holy Spirit and that God now dwells in each one of us. But still... A church building has a significance that is somewhat like the temple. And so um, the temple is the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, his presence was uniquely concentrated in the Holy of Holies, which was the back room of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant stood. And if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know that uh, 
out of that Ark of the Covenant, there was this tremendous power that could melt the face of all these Nazi generals. And uh, that power and presence was the glory cloud, where Yahweh visibly uh, and sensibly dwelt. Now, obviously, God is omniscient, and he's omnipotent, and he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, he's ubiquitous, but still, God decided to have this visual uh, representation of his presence on earth in the Holy of Holies. Um, And one of the sons of Korah was just overwhelmed by the fact that in this temple where God's presence dwelt, uh, there was a little tiny, you know, sparrow up in, in, a, in the corner that he saw maybe flitting around. And then maybe he looked over in another side and he saw there was a little nest and the little nest had baby swallows in it. And uh, he must have thought to himself, you know, God doesn't want these things cleaned out of here. It's not like uh, downtown, if there's a homeless person near a restaurant, you want to get them out of there, keep it clean looking. God's not like that with his house. And in this moment of brilliance, the uh, son of Korah realizes that that little nest and that little bird say so much about the hospitality of God. That even the sparrow finds a home. In verse 3, the swallow, a nest for herself and her, she can lay her young there at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And one of the reasons that I wanted to preach on this psalm is because growing up, I didn't even know this growing up, but my parents have this lithograph, this print of that one verse uh, on this picture in their den. I don't know if it's still there, but growing up it was there. And um, when I was little, all I could tell was it had a little bird and a little nest and three little eggs in the nest. And it had something kind of like in calligraphy written around it. And it wasn't until later that I realized that what was written around it was verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. And I didn't know what in the world it meant my whole life until I read Psalm 84. And I think now that what it means is that God is just a radically hospitable God that welcomes in the smallest and the most vulnerable creatures. It was like Jesus said uh, that, uh, that God knows every single sparrow. That he knows when every sparrow falls to the ground, the smallest bird, that God is aware of that. And Jesus used that to teach that God is also aware of you. And that no matter how insignificant you feel, no matter how small or different or odd you feel, that in the temple, those little tiny birds just showed to this son of Korah uh, that God's care is very, very wide and very deep. And that his his, uh, his face shines on all. Verse 11, the Lord God is a sun. And Jesus said that the sun doesn't discriminate between the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun shines down on everyone. So when, this, when the psalm says the, the Lord God is a sun, it means that uh, every single person is covered by the radiance of God. And I think that Jesus, when he came and was bringing his kingdom on earth, he obviously was taking his cues from the temple. The temple taught him uh, what his father's kingdom was like. It was a, it was a kingdom that, had, uh, that included women and children in a way that Israel didn't even include them. Because in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the kingdom of Jesus, women and children were baptized. They were brought in. Uh, in the churches, women came in and they prophesied. 
And in the temple in the Old Testament, only men were circumcised, only boys were circumcised. And a lot of times in the synagogues, the women uh, couldn't go into certain parts, uh, couldn't speak. And Jesus took his cues from Psalm 84 to say, no, the kingdom of God is wider than, than was even known in the Old Testament. And not only women and children, but, I mean, he had, he had tax collectors in his, in his group. And uh, the tax collector would have been like, a, you know, a white supremacist or some, somebody that you just would think is the worst possible person. That's what a tax collector was like to someone who was Jewish. And Jesus offended everyone by bringing in tax collectors. And he also brought in prostitutes. And uh, prostitutes would have never been allowed in the synagogue. And yet he had prostitutes uh, in his midst. He welcomed them in. And lepers, untouchable people that nobody wanted to be around, he brought in lepers. Even people who were not Jewish, uh, Gentiles, uh, like the Samaritan woman, the Canaanite woman, Jesus welcomed them all. And all of this was much to the consternation of his contemporaries. One thing that um, characterizes all the opponents of Jesus, whether they were the scribes or the Pharisees or the Sadducees, is that they wanted a very comfortable life in Israel. They wanted Israel to be a very safe community with good schools. Uh, the, the website for the village of Clemens describes itself this way. The village of Clemens is a great place to live with low tax rates, curbside solid waste and recycling collection, annual bulky item pickup. Additionally, many Forsyth County public safety officers live in Clemens. There is street maintenance and street lights at all intersections. Now, I don't mean to pick on Clemens. That could be said of Ardmore, where I live as well. Um, sometimes Ardmore people have this pride about themselves that we're better than Clemens. But, you know, this is just a description of where any American would want to live. And um, the drift of all churches and the drift of Israel is always towards safety and comfort and not welcoming those people that Jesus did, the swallow and the sparrow, especially like families and children are always kind of the drift that those are the ones that are protected and recognized. And, you know, it's not that churches don't think about outsiders. They do. Uh, but you just don't hear many complaints about outsiders not being welcomed in. Uh, Austin uh, brought this up at a session meeting recently that, um, you know, you don't hear complaints about uh, the lack of hospitality to other people. Uh, you don't hear complaints about the lack of visitors or the lack of conversions. You're going to hear complaints about music, sermon, child care, small groups, building, parking, those kind of things. Uh, something involving our needs not being met. But uh, for Jesus, you know, his eye was uh, on the sparrow and on the swallow. And that is what uh, he really cared about. And one of the saddest things for me as a pastor is when I hear people say that they came here and they didn't feel welcome. And I'm not blaming anyone for that. Um, it's a culture that we create, I think. Uh, but people say sometimes that they're too ashamed to come. And I lay that somewhat on them. But obviously there's also some perception that they're getting from us, uh, that they're not welcomed here. I don't know why. Um, some people say no one reached out to them when they came. And, uh, you know, in some churches, it's, it's like all the little swallow's nests are being uh, cleaned out. I, I've even heard people say they didn't feel cool enough to be here. 
And I was shocked by that because I said, who in here is actually cool? I don't know anyone in here that's, that's cool. Um, I'm certainly not cool. But, uh, but people still have said that more than once. And um, the tragedy is that the church, uh, the church should absolutely feel like a home. To people where they say, you know, I can't wait to get back to my people. I feel comfortable in that place. Uh, all types of people. A, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. It says in verse 10. And you don't feel that way about uh, a place that's kind of stiff. I've stayed in people's homes that welcomed me in that were so beautiful. And they had folded towels and linens on my dresser when I got there. And I had a private bathroom with a walk-in shower and a, a queen-size bed. And it was gorgeous. It smelled good. And um, the host was really kind. But I didn't know them that well, so it was not a, I didn't want to be there a thousand days. You know, a few days was enough, and, and then I wanted to get back home. But I've also been uh, in, in, in the houses and the apartments of best friends where I slept on a couch. You've all had this experience where you just crash on someone's couch. And I could, um, I could kick off my shoes there. I could take my shoes off. I could put my feet up on the couch. I could invade their fridge. I had refrigerator rights. I even took a nap, you know, with they, them in the room talking. And that is where uh, you feel at home. Um, this psalmist says in verse 10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God, which means I'd rather be sleeping on a ratty couch in the house of God than to dwell in the tents, the king-sized beds, you know, the tents were these magnificent things. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in, in the dwelling of God than to live in some mansion um, where there's no presence of God. It's all, it's all about the host. Wherever you stay, uh, it's all about the host. It's all about the welcome. It's all about how f- welcome you feel like the host is. Um, and, and, of course, in, in this case, the host is infinitely welcoming and uh, entirely warm. You know, it's, it's kind of almost going too far to say that he wants everyone to feel comfortable, but there is a sense in which he wants everyone to feel uh, secure and safe in his presence. That uh, God would go out of his way to make anyone uh, feel that they're safe and uh, that they're loved and welcomed here. I remember the first time that Margie and I visited uh, this person at seminary. Her name was Christina Walker. Um, we visited her apartment, and we didn't know her at all at the time. So we walk into her apartment, and um, while we were greeting each other, she has this rack of cassette tapes. Probably no one has ever seen a cassette tape but me, but... They would put them on these racks, and they made a lot of noise if they fell over. And Margie accidentally knocked over all of her cassette tapes. And so Margie got down on her knees apologizing um, and um, kind of trying to clean up. And then Christina looked right at Margie and smiled and knocked over all the rest of her cassette tapes (laughs) just to make us feel welcome. And she said, you know, these are just stupid tapes. Don't worry about it. And I don't know what the analogy there is with God. You know, I can't really put my finger on what God would do to make people feel welcome. But I do know that um, the church is not a stiff place. It's not a, it's not a place with priceless china objects. You might have had a grandmother's house like that with uh, Persian rugs and formal clothes had to be on all the time. Your feet had to be on the floor. You had to have your back straight. You had to have your elbows off the table. No noise from children. Certainly no children dancing. Like the idea of children dancing in that house would be absolutely ridiculous. 
But who would want to be in that house like that a thousand days? I mean, I'd want, I, I would want to be out as soon as possible. Um, and, and yet God's house is exactly the opposite of that. And so we've done things in this church that are really crazy. Um, things that uh, very few of you know about. There was a time when there was no bulletin. So people came in and didn't know what to do next. And we had those little overhead projectors with the little slides. But the slides didn't match the song that the singer was leading. So that didn't work very well. And there was no liturgy at all. Um, nobody knew what was coming next. There was one guy that he programmed his computer to play these songs. And he just sat up there with a computer and uh, we tried to sing along with his computer that was playing this music. Uh, there was one person that was painting during a sermon, and um, there was a, a, a series of long poetry readings. There were super intense personal confessions that made people feel really uncomfortable, and I think that's great. I think that um, that history of Salem is a beautiful thing, and I, I hope and, and uh, long for it to persist, that this is God's home. That's the first point, that this is, uh, it's the safest place on earth. And, and yet it's also, like I said, there's a tension there because it's also majestic and it's beautiful and there should be reverence and a high level of respect for, for God and God's holiness. And that's point two, that, that God is, his home is beautiful as well as comfortable and as well as homey. And it says in, in verse two, uh, my soul faints or swoons for the courts of the Lord. And that phrase in verse 1, uh, the Lord of hosts, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Um, that phrase means the Lord of the angel armies. And so you imagine like King Arthur on uh, this great big green field mustering his troops with uh, the war horses snorting and stamping on the ground and the banners snapping in the wind and helmets and halberds glittering in the sun. That is the image of the Lord of hosts. And so what uh, the psalmist is saying is that there's a beauty there that his soul is like longing for. And the way that when you first fall in love, you can't even imagine talking to that person because they're so high and lifted up. And there's this quality and beauty of being um, unobtainable. And so, so high and lofty that you can't even quite reach out and grab it. And that's what the psalmist is saying that the temple is like. It's that lovely. And I love how the psalmist imagines a pilgrim coming to Jerusalem. So the psalmist is trying to, the, the psalmist is a son of Korah, but is actually putting uh, his head in the, in the mind of a pilgrim that is coming to Jerusalem for one of the great feasts. And so he says in verse 5, blessed are those in whose Heart are the highways to Zion. Zion is another name, an exalted name for the city of Jerusalem. And the, the pilgrims coming down from Galilee, uh, the moment, the climactic moment is when they came over the hill, I think it was the Mount of Olives, and they saw, and if you were a little child, it would have been for the first time of your life, they saw this glittering city, like a city of gold, with high walls, and dominating the skyline of the city way, way higher than anything else was a 200-foot temple. A structure unlike anything they would have ever seen. And it was gold and marble. And it was glittering in the sun. And Psalm 124 says, I rejoiced when they said to me, we are going to the house of the Lord. Because it was that overwhelming. And if you have lived in a place like Nazareth 
or Capernaum, where all you ever saw were mud huts and uh, very short, simple clay structures. Imagine seeing this temple. Again, it was built to be overwhelming, to just be stunning, to take your breath away. And you just got, you've got to imagine the first time you ever saw like a majestic beauty that you, it kind of, you caught your breath. Uh, maybe the ocean, the first time you saw the ocean or the Grand Canyon or uh, Niagara Falls, if you've seen that. I remember when I first went to New York City and I came up out of the train in Penn Station, I could not believe what was around me. It was just that majestic. I think for me, um, when I saw this building in England called uh, York Minster, it's the largest cathedral in England. It's in the city of York. And it's uh, 200 feet high, just like the temple. It's 500 feet long. And it was built in 1300. So that, I had never seen a building older than like 200 years old in Winston-Salem. And I go to York, and it's got the largest expanse of stained glass in the whole world. So these beautiful stained glass windows, they don't even compare to you know, hundreds of feet of stained glass, 500 feet long, longer than a, a, a football field. And I saw that thing, and um, I could, it took hundreds of years of skilled craftsmen to build this building. And I could tell it felt personal. I was an atheist. I didn't have any sense of God, but it was like beauty was kind of reaching out and grabbing me. And I want you to think about whatever that was for you, and that's what the pilgrim would have felt like when they were approaching... Jerusalem. I mean, the mere anticipation of getting there, it was in itself transformative. And so in verse 6, it says, as they go through uh, the valley of Baca, and that means parched place. So that's a, that's a desert. As the Galilean pilgrims are going south through the valley of Baca, uh, they, they turn it into a place of springs. And the early rain covers it with pool. And scholars know that this is not literal. The, the pilgrims would have gone down there in the fall. It was not a time of the spring rains. And so it was, this is a, a metaphor, a symbol of the longing of the pilgrim for the temple. And even when they were in the worst parts of the journey, uh, there was this desire, this thirst that was building in them when they actually got to see the temple. Uh, we once traveled to Disney World with our children when they were really little. And about the time you get to Jacksonville, uh, they're just they're, they're going crazy in the car. Okay? There's no containing the children by the time you get to Jacksonville. And we're still a couple hours from the Magic Kingdom. And so we have to start describing, like, wait till you see Cinderella's Castle, or wait till you see Space Mountain, or the Jungle Cruise. And you've got to get in the child's mind what they're about to see. And, uh, and the excitement and the beauty of that final destination can actually get you through the, the parched place. And if you think about this life as a pilgrimage to Disney World, it really doesn't do much for you. But if you think about it as a <laughs> pilgrimage to some kind of heavenly Zion, I mean, the temple is just a tiny little representation of what the future kingdom would be like in all of its beauty. And so even when the pilgrim is exhausted and parched and weary, it says in verse 7, they go from strength to strength. They get stronger and stronger. With every mile, they go farther south towards the temple. And Paul actually quotes that verse in a, a really beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And he's trying to encourage the Corinthian church, don't lose heart. 
you're really, really messed up. There are terrible things happening. You're divided. Uh, there's all sorts of sexual immorality going on. And I've told you all these things, but now I don't want you to lose heart. And so Paul says to this Corinthian church, beholding the glory of God, you are being metamorphized. Literally in Greek, it's uh, metamorphized. You are being metamorphized into the image of God from one degree of glory to another, from strength to strength. And so what that's saying about us is that uh, beholding the beauty of God, the face of God, um, you're transformed. So just by meditating on uh, the beauty of God and uh, in reading the scriptures to see the beauty of God in the Bible, in worship to experience the beauty of God in the baptism, um, whenever you have that hitting you, it is changing you. Uh, Paul says you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another as you behold the face of God. And verse 7, when it says each one appears before God in Zion, it literally says each one is seen by the face of God. Each pilgrim that's coming to Zion, is the destiny is to get um, to that temple, get inside the temple as far as you can, and the priest is then supposed to lift up their hands and say, the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face shine upon you. And that's uh, what verse 9 is talking about. Look upon the face of your anointed pilgrims. That's, that, that is called the uh, beatific vision in uh, Christian theology. And whenever you've ever experienced any beauty, whether you're a believer or not, I think whenever you experience any beauty and that longing hits you, it is the face of God. It is the face of God that you're longing for. And it's the goal of all human life, is to see the beautiful face of God. Again, in verse 11, uh, shining like the sun at full strength. The Lord God is a sun. And I think that this is what makes Christianity so different. Um, the beauty of God's face uh, is, is because uh, what makes it so bright and luminescent and I think all the religions have some um, amount of understanding of this, but uh, there is no other religion that describes, like Christianity, uh, the grace of the face of God. And so it says in verse 11, the Lord bestows, and that's, a, that's an active word of God doing everything. I mean, God is the one who is initiating every single moment of your relationship with him. You think that God is like, you're trying to beckon God on, come on, help me out, come on, like, He's lagging behind, but he is always bestowing on you any amount of desire you have for him. And it says that the, lo the Lord bestows favor and honor, and literally it's grace. It says grace and honor. Uh, the Lord bestows grace. And that's the, that's the beauty of God's face, is this bestowal of his grace. And um, if you know the book of, uh, of Numbers, this is so amazing. In the book of Numbers... When Israel is wandering through the desert, uh, there's a certain group of people that almost destroy the entire nation because they were so rebellious. And they actually decided to try to take over. And so they uh, tried to overthrow Moses' rule. And they nearly destroy Israel. The whole entire project is almost thrown off. And do you know who that group of people is? It's the sons of Korah. 
And so, you know, the bestowal of, of grace, it's like, who else but the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would take these traitors and immediately say to them, after the wilderness wandering is over, when they get to the promised land, I want you to be the greeters in my house because you know my grace like no one else does. Uh, and, and the sons of Korah are now in the house uh, singing about God, bestowing favor and honor and looking with grace upon his children. And again, going back to the uh, uniqueness of Jesus, I think what Jesus shows us about God that, that nothing else does is simply the crown of thorns and uh, the scars and him looking at people who were actively persecuting him and torturing him and saying to them, you know, with this uh, gaze of love, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, it would be amazing if a man said that. But what we believe that's so astonishing is that we think that that's what God was saying. And that God allowed God's self to be um, trampled that, to that extent. The same God that forgave the sons of Korah uh, was there on the cross. And it says that he withholds no good thing uh, to those who love him. Uh, he is not going to hold back anything. Paul says if, if God didn't spare his son, but gave him up for us all, what in the world would he ever withhold from you? So if you think that God is withholding anything from you, uh, please don't believe those lies. He would give you anything that would help you. Anything that would be good for you, he would give you. If he did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, why would he ever think about withholding anything good for us? And this is, uh, this is the best thing he could ever give. His very own son's body and blood. And as we come to this table, uh, I just want to reiterate what Austin said, which is that everyone is welcome here. And we actively pray that people would come here who are...